Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode 58 of Hello, Fellow Kids. Woohoo! This is the podcast where we read a usually middle grade book, sometimes teen, YA, whatever you want to call it, and then uh, we discuss it. So if that's your jam, here we are. And if that sounds miserable, there's lots of other podcasts on Spotify. Have a good time. (laughs) We're so good at selling ourselves. (laughs) Well, I know how lame it sounds. We're going to be talking about books. And they're like, all right, that thing that no one likes. Okay, no one come at me. I know people like that. I know that um, people discussing books on TikTok has helped like increase sales for particular titles like Colleen Hoover's undeserved success. So here we are hoping to spotlight someone who deserves Colleen Hoover level success. Um, This time around we're reading Amari and the Great Game by B.B. Alston. And uh, if you're trying to find, you know, if you don't like certain transphobic authors who just keep showing their, but online with their bad takes and you need to somehow fill that magic YA void in your life since you've stopped reading her. I think this is a solid option. And uh, yeah, we've read the first book and this is the second book in the series. How did we, how did we feel about um, our second foray into the Amari and the Bureau and the summer camp that sounds more like school and I wouldn't want to go after a full year of school. <laughs> um, uh, I'll say that I liked it. I did like it. I, it. The things I liked about the first one were present in this one as well. I also like it. I'm not quite as enthusiastic as the first one, but it's not like enough of a drop for me to be concerned. It's just like, a little bit of the novelty is worn off and I maybe, you know, thought some parts of the plot weren't quite my thing, but like, it's still very enjoyable and I'm still down to read more. So. See, the thing about this book is, uh, it's a bummer ending. I was, I was not expecting it. I kept going, wait, what? I said, (laughs) wait, what? A couple different times. Cause it just came so close to like, oh, it's going to, I see where this is going to go. We're going to wrap this up. We're going to have like an end chapter where it's like, we all got what we wanted. Yeah. And no, that does not happen. <laughs> so that kind of inhibited my enjoyment because I don't like being stressed and a lot of things happening here were super stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I think it's the same like caliber of writing. I thought the plotting was good. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'll just I'll skip to the end with our ratings and say, like, for me, this is the difference between like a strong four versus a a, a, a questionable five. Like, this is still a strong four yeah. sort of a thing for me. Like, it's it's a very small difference in like enjoyment. So, um, nobody. When I saw the the average reviews on Goodreads, they're at four point four, and I was like, that sounds about right. Yeah. But. They don't let you do that on on uh, Goodreads. So. No, which is why you should be using the story graph. Even then, it's just like point fives. They don't let you do four point four. I don't think unless you just like you can do, um, enter that in. You can do point uh, two fives, so you can break it down a little bit more. You could do zeros. <laughs> you can, yeah, you can do. <laughs> you can do full on poop shelf. 
Yeah, for all you guys who don't know, that's a Kate Beaton reference where she was reading um, really bad reviews for classic literature and thinking it was funny. And she was picturing, um, I can't remember what, I think it was Tolstoy <laughs> reading it. He's like, you think I'm a long-winded son of a bitch? <laughs> you put my book on the poop shelf? The poop shelf? <laughs> so that I made my own shelf. In Goodreads labeled poop, and I have my own books on the poop shelf. Tolstoy is not on there. I have not read um, any of the Russian literature. I guess I should, but I'm just kind of intimidated by it, so yeah. I have not. Yeah. I think That's I've why read I have a middle grade podcast and not a Russian <laughs> literature podcast. Right. Anyway, right. yeah, this was this was good. We we liked it. Yeah. Um, but that caveat of like. Um, it, this is a bummer ending. Like, just be braced. <laughs> I was like, wow, he like prisoner of Azkaban us real early in the series. <laughs> Let us get comfortable for two books of like, everything works out until like, oh, sometimes things don't work out. Um, Yeah. Well, so speaking of series on Goodreads, at least it's referred to as a trilogy. Which is kind of disappointing, because I think there's a lot more than just three books worth of content in this world. You know, he could always revisit it after, like, a time skip, and she's a little older. That's true, yeah. I mean, it's it's so, always it's, it's always the, like, you don't want to overstay your welcome sort of a thing. Um, yeah. I just, you know, I, you know, Harry Potter got seven, and Percy Jackson got five, asterisk. Um, and so, like, this one only having three, it's like, ah, uh, you could you can give him a little bit more. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, I think there would definitely be room for like further exploration down the line, obviously, depending on how, what, you know, what plot book three entails, but yeah, maybe he'll be like reading, writing book three and go, you know, there, there's probably like one more book here. I'm trying to do too much in this one. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I need, uh, it sounds like, uh, I read his like acknowledgements and he, he's like, oh, so-and-so and like all the people you have read your stuff and like give you feedback he's like your feedback and notes were invaluable to this and i was just like you've got good people helping you because there wasn't much here where i was just like oh that was weird because i like yeah. everything usually called back um there wasn't any cheats like everything mentioned came back later and uh nothing conveniently springing up when you need it or whatever or if it did it made sense within the context of that world i was just like wow there's a department for everything <laughs> but that just that fits with that place and and of course she, you know in like one year she's you know i'm not even one year one summer of her being there she wouldn't know every single department mm -hmm. so yeah so um well written, good time, and those that's all we ask for really. All I ask is that you don't bore me. And I was not bored. Oh no, I remember what I was gonna say earlier. But um you're reading through it and you don't realize how much information and how much has happened until you're synopsizing and I was just like I, I just, I'm just reading like four chapters at a time. <laughs> I'm having to write so much. I so was so glad. I was so glad I didn't have to write for this one. Because I did the first one, and I was like, that there's a lot. <laughs> It's pretty skimpy. I don't go into details. There's fewer jokes because I was like, I got to get this done. <laughs> There's so much to cover. And like I completely and I finished it and then completely avoided writing like the last bit 
down because I was just like, that was such a bummer. I just want to not be around it for a little while. So I don't, I can't imagine how he must have felt writing it. Just like, oh gosh, what else am I going to throw at this poor little girl? All right. Um, anything else? No, I think I'm ready to dive in. Okay, let's do this. So here we are, Amari in the Great Game. Um, our story starts off happily enough. Amari is now a celebrity thanks to saving the world in the previous book. She's been attending a nice private school with her best friend, Elsie, and she even has a circle of friends, Julie or Julia, I don't remember which since she doesn't matter, and Bear, who no doubt is one of the guys who thinks Biden needs to pardon Andrew Tate. The kids meet up at a fancy supernatural dessert shop, and Elsie buys them real fortune cookies, though the messages are just as vague as the fortune cookies us normies have to endure. Um, Amaris tells her to beware of unseen dangers. Well, everything falls apart almost immediately after that. When the kids get on the bus for a field trip, Elsie receives an acceptance uh, into Oxford. I know in the previous chapter, our heroes were rubbing elbows with boggarts and harpies, but I find this really hard to believe. But Omari believes it, and she's heartbroken to lose her only friend. The dude, uh, or the dud whose name I can't remember, and the chode who desperately wants to call her a slur, don't count. Um, then everyone on the school bus freezes, literally all except Omari. It doesn't seem to last long, but once it's over, no one has a memory of it happening. The supernatural kids get alerts on their phones that a time freeze just happened and they watch a news conference in which director van helsing accuses magicians of being responsible uh moments later amari receives an email from the bureau of supernatural affairs uninviting her from camp her access to the supernatural internet the other net is also denied well shit when amari returns home she doesn't see her busybody neighbor mrs walters standing at a usual spot in the window she goes to investigate and thinks that since Mrs. Walters is a witch in disguise, maybe Amari can get some info about this time freeze from her. It turns out Mrs. Walters isn't just a witch. She's four witches. They're not being nosy in the window because they're packing their stuff and leaving town. But they do sit down to play a game of spades and the Mrs. Walters give away information bit by bit. Like, isn't it interesting that Merlin hasn't said anything about the time freeze and it's Deputy Minister Bane making all the moves? Bane's a wraith, a supernatural being that's the result of someone's spirit being cursed from their body. Magicians were the ones to, you know, do the cursing, specifically the Knight Brothers, so the wraiths have a bit of a grudge, you might say. This is why the Mrs. Walters are hitting the bricks. Their coven had aligned themselves with the Knight Brothers back in the day, and now that Bane's got to be in his bonnet, ready to kick ass and take names, they don't want to be on to be there when he gets to them on the on their shit list. Um, the Mrs. Walters taxi comes to collect them, and Amari goes to her apartment where her mother's fixing dinner for them and Elsie, who might be coming by if her overprotective mother will even let her eat at a magician's house. Amari immediately annoys me by not telling her mother what's going on. When Elsie shows up and Mom feels the tension between the girls, she leaves them alone to talk and goes to the corner store for a soda pop. Elsie is determined that they investigate and clear magicians of wrongdoing so Amari can go to camp and they can have one more summer together before Elsie goes to Oxford. As if. As they talk, Elsie gets an important announcement on her phone. One part of Georgia didn't unfreeze and it happened during the Supernatural World Congress. All the leaders and high up muckety mucks, including Merlin, are frozen and out of action. 
Bain says this happened because the Bureau got too tolerant, letting in unwanteds. This is stupid, let's go Brandon coded language, meaning magicians. Okay, things are worse than the girls realize, and a two-person plucky girl detective team isn't going to cut it this time around. Amari decides to contact the International League of Magicians to find out what's up. Amari uses the business card that the good magician Cosmo gave her at the end of the first book. She follows the instructions on the card, putting it up in the mirror, and then goes through it when it ripples like water. So Amari goes through and nearly drowns herself in Lake Loch Ness, luckily not getting eaten by our underwater ally. She sees the shape of a man in a doorway and reaches for him. It's Cosmo, and he pulls her into his summer house at the bottom of Loch Ness. Not my first choice of vacation home, but magicians are built different, I guess. Cosmo is offended when Amari asks if magicians are responsible for the time freeze. He's confident that they're not, which makes me suspicious. Then he starts babbling about Amari and Dylan Van Helsing, our villain from the previous book, being the only born magicians of uh, this current generation. He then offers her leadership of the League of Magicians, and there's an honest-to-God crown. Amari's like, um, I need to think about this. And Cosmo's like, uh, take the crown and defeat our enemies. She's all, just let me figure out how to stop the time freeze so you can quit acting like an unhinged loser. He warns her that refusing the crown comes with grave consequences. And it's like, dude, shut up. When has anything ever been easy for this kid? Also, is this convenience store her mom went to in Spain or something? How has she been gone this long? That was like six chapters, which simultaneously feels like we tackled a lot, but also very little because this is just a... <laughs> it's just crammed full of stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, But early on, they're talking about the, like, the secret cafe or whatever and um, yeah. they have the the world's best bad coffee which tastes so awful it shocks you into perfect wide awakeness um i made a note that that's similar to how i only use like i only use alarms and like ringtones and stuff that i don't like because i I, 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 the point of it is to get my attention to make it stop as quick as possible. So it's like, it sucks, but it works. And I think that's the same kind of logic as like coffee that's disgusting. Cause like the, at least it's doing its job. And you're not going to overdo it either. Cause with yummy coffee, it's just like, oh, I'm going to drink this whole thing. And then they're just wired all day. Right. You become like a three coffee a day sort of person. It's like, not with that stuff. No, no. One and done. And then I made a note about um, Jaden being admitted into the Bureau. I wrote, it was literal, because we had a conversation at the end of the last book about how when she mentioned the, like starting up Clinton's tutoring program again, if she literally uh-huh. meant, like, you're going to be part of this world, or if it was like, a, I'm just going to, like, you know, I'm going to help, you know, help you find a... a a safer outlet for your time and stuff like that but like literally he gets to be part of it now which i thought was cool and uh that guy that interviewed him did the same thing he did with amari and like lowballed what he thought that kid would be capable of and then got a copper badge which is what is that like the fourth best badge you could get yeah so like suck it what are you doing racist bitch right yeah it's just he's I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a sign that, like, you know, not everybody, like, sometimes it takes people a while to learn 
or unlearn things, and it's not as simple as like, oh, I met I met one person who uh, changed my perspective, and now I'm going to fix everything. Sometimes it takes dumb people a lot of chances to really figure that out, and a lot of us don't don't need to be around giving them all those chances because it's not worth it. <laughs> no. Obviously, I recognize this the first time around, but I think when you were talking about the World Council being frozen again, I really started to appreciate the fact that this World Council is in Atlanta, of all places, and not London or New York or L.A. or something like that. Like, the the idea of putting it elsewhere is just really nice, and it's like, there are more places where things go on and places that matter other than the same handful of cities we always see totally yeah plus i guess it's it'd be a place you don't expect and it's a big enough metropolitan area that you still could get away with um hiding your mystery shit like you, you couldn't in like a small town right but but like um, atlanta's yeah. big <laughs> it's not atlanta's just because big. it's not yeah. just because it's not new york doesn't mean it's not also a huge city Totally. Yeah. So that's why I like that it's not, yeah, that it's not like New York or LA or London. Let's see. They're talking about the unwanteds and, uh, you know, Amari's like, this isn't fair. They didn't choose to be unwanted any more than I chose to be a magician. Yeah, we're considered illegal simply for existing. And I wrote in my notes, I wrote, my evenings on leftist YouTube have prepared me for this moment because while I was reading this, that was all I was watching on YouTube was just like very long, like leftist, uh, uh, like video essays and news dissections and things like that. And I was like, I'm so ready for this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely drawing a lot of, um, comparison to like no person is illegal talking about the illegals and deporting them and stuff and ice and all that crap. Yeah. And I'm just like, ah, yeah, I see what he's doing here. There's no escape. And I was, and I'm still confused, confused. Exactly. I'm still confused a little bit by the distinction between these idiots at the bureau and what a magician is. And I'm just like, it seems like a really thin hair to split. And when I was sitting there thinking about that, I was like, that's not poor world building. That's just how the world is. Yeah. That's the point. Usually yeah. Yeah. So I was just, yeah, that's exactly the, you're right. It, I was just, but I still was just, it, it took me a second to like think of that. Yeah. And be like, oh, that's kind of what separates everybody. It's just some flimsy difference. Yeah. But it makes all the difference. <laughs> yeah. You're like, okay. It's just some people's insistence on, you know, there has to be. There has to be an in-group and an out-group, and, yes, you know, if everybody is similar in all these ways, we have to find any little difference to create the, you know, the haves and the have-nots. Like that lady busting and goes, I smell magic, and I'm like, ma'am, you just came here in a talking elevator. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's you. It's, <laughs> it's you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I started getting pretty suspicious of the League of Magicians pretty quickly in terms of, like, you know, I, they, do they stand to gain something from the freeze and stuff like that? And I'm just, uh, the, the Cosmo is 
as soon as he's like, listen, child, you need to accept this or the other child will. And I'm just like, can you like you're you're pushing really hard against that, like that villain monologue line right there. Um, Do you want to like tone down a bit or is that kind of what you're going for? Right. It's so in making sure she's by herself, but there's no one, you know. Like Maria Van Helsing isn't present for this, yeah, or, or anything. Just like some adult who could be like, okay, yeah, pump the brakes, jackass. Like, <laughs> let's try and settle this down a little bit. Like they could have resolved this in so many ways. Like they could have, like how I don't know. Do we want to spoil the book right now? But um, they could have stormed in and gotten unfroze the the freeze because they could. And like save the day, and then it's like, whoa, look it, it's all of them. It wasn't just, you know, little Amari is like, no, you have to believe that magicians are bad based on this one child. You know, there's so many things they could have done, and they just chose not to. So, I mean, I guess I see why they didn't, because it's just like these hundreds of years of resentments that have just been festering, and they're just aching for a chance for this to happen. And, Uh uh, leap at it yeah um i don't want to dig too much into it because i can't speak on it as intelligently as the person i watched on youtube but that actually draws some comparisons to um the first black panther movie and the uh the argument between like staying hidden and protecting your own because historically interactions with the outside world have gone very poorly um versus you know, stepping onto the world stage and showing the positives of your group and, you know, using your resources to assist the same people who may have previously, you know, hated you. Um, and kind of that, the, the, the whole, like the Black Panther Killmonger argument going on there, um, where there's not, you know, maybe in certain instances there's a right answer, but like overall, there's an argument to be made for both of those, uh, kind of depending on the situation. Um, yeah yeah I think that's all I have for that first bit there yeah I don't know I there's it especially especially this next section I just there there are several pages with no notes or highlighting and apparently I was just really into reading so I get it yeah that's why I kind of had to format it the way I do so I actually do have a stopping point and I get like a good enough chunk of reading that I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. Yeah. But it's still not so overwhelming that I can at least still write stuff. Yeah. And not feel like I'm writing like half the book. Because we, yeah, because we, you know, we're not really paid for this, but we have a job to do in terms of like what we're presenting in the podcast. And so we need to make sure we're prepared. But at the same time, like, we're doing a, the book a disservice to a degree if we have to stop you know, every few pages and write a summary and stuff, it completely kills any of the momentum. So you have to find a yeah. balance for that. Totally. All right. Okay. Ready to move on? Sure. <clears throat> okay. So the next morning, Amari still doesn't tell her mom that something's wrong and lies, saying that she's going to camp late because of a project. Her mom just barely buys this excuse and takes Jaden, the boy from the neighborhood who Amari nominated for the Bureau, to camp. 
Meanwhile, Amari sits there sweating until she gets the news that she's back in back into camp. Maria Van Helsing and Elsie used social media clout to turn the public on Amari's side. The Bureau caved to the pressure and uh, invited her back. Elsie comes to get Amari, and the two teleport to the zoo and then join a line of supernatural creatures to um, a series of tubes. I guess this is the internet. No. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you remember that? Someone, a guy was like, the internet's basically a series of tubes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, the tubes. In order to enter the hotel where the Bureau of Supernatural Affairs is located, the building is under lockdown, so it's faster to take the tube then try to get through the security to get in the normal way. Turns out that it's a harrowing, awful experience, and they pledge never to do it again. Um, The girls barely step foot in the bureau when they're swept away to a press conference by the new head of the Department of Half-Truths and Full Cover-Ups, a fawn named Director Harlow. Harlow tells the press pool that Amari's being uninvited, or that, yeah, Amari's being uninvited was an oopsie-poopsie, and everything's gravy now. The press have questions, none of which are answered, much like a real-world press conference. Um, Harlow is overly friendly and just gives off weird vibes with her aggressive cheerfulness. The girls are immediately wary. Once that shit show's over, Amari gets to visit Quentin, who's uh, still in a coma. They catch up with one another through their magical conduit, Maria. Amari is desperate to talk to Maria about the time freeze in the League of Magicians, but Maria warns her with facial expressions and tone to uche up hey, but she does promise that they can talk tomorrow. After that, the girls check out their fancy new digs compared to the prison cell they shared last summer. Under their pillows, they find invitations to join clubs. Elsie has an astonishing amount of bullshit considering she's Little Miss Oxford. Amari has only one invite, but it's quality over quantity because it's an invite to a club called The Elites. A little too on the nose. Why don't they try something stupid like Harvard's Tasty Pudding Club? So before the club fair is dinner, where Lara Van Helsing is being tormented by Bear and his friends. Amari and I are like, Karma is a cat purring in my lap because it loves me. (laughs) Elsie guilts her into helping Lara, which Lara, of course, doesn't appreciate. Later, they wonder why little Miss Lara Van Helsing was even at dinner. Uh, when she failed the junior agent tryout the previous year for being a big fat liar. Okay, so the club fair is like every club fair you've been to at school with booths and shit, but the elites get a big production and tent. Amari meets a boy who's a hotshot and a mentee of her own brother, Quentin, this kid named Tristan Davies. He's arrogant and pretty annoying until the elites announce the gold star elites, and Amari is one, but not Tristan. He drops her like a bad habit, and Amari couldn't care less because now she gets to unsubtly ask all the directors about the time freeze and why the Bureau isn't investigating it. She tries to eavesdrop on Harlow and Van Helsing and uh, Director Van Helsing, but gets caught. Harlow tells Amari that Bane's covering the investigation, not the Bureau, because he fears it was an inside job. She low-key threatens Amari to quit playing plucky girl detective and orders her to let it go because we're all buddies here, aren't we? No. No, we are not. Ugh. The um the elites group reminds me of um shoot. What's the name of the group that is it Logan? Rory's boyfriend and Gilmore Girls, the like creepy one in college. Oh dude, I'm not gonna know. Yeah. I I didn't watch too much Gilmore Girls. 
Oh, it's be- and it, it that one in itself is based on it's like the Suicide Club or something like noxious like that or like the Cliff Jumpers or oh. I don't remember. Now, hasty pudding. Hasty pudding is the way to go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's no one even speed. remembers what hasty pudding is anymore anyway. It's an outdated dessert that no one wants to eat. Well, let's not be too hasty pudding about that. <laughs> I do like that uh the 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 constant push and pull of Amari is like the super special best chosen candidate, you know, the chosen one sort of situation, but also is constantly running up against this we hate you sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so like on a like a on a trope level, it helps you not be like, oh great, cool, another chosen one sort of a thing. Um which I'm not really like I don't care. Like the we you most people want to read stories like this about people who are special. Like it's that's kind of part of the point. Um so I I'm not too worried about that, but like it it's it's good for that level of criticism, but it's also like it I think that's something that people in the real world can also attest to to like, you know, I am you know, I'm valedictorian or I'm, you know, I'm in the honor society, all of these clubs, but then people take a look at me and they don't see any of that. They just see all of these prejudices. Um, and you have to, you have to live with like both of those perspectives. Like they're not true, but there are people who see them as the truth and you have to constantly navigate these like really high, uh, expectations. And also the fact that there are people that are going to just completely treat you like trash. Um, oh, yeah. Um, I actually kind of have more respect for Bear of anybody here because he's yeah. consistent. Even when everyone's saying, oh, she's a rock star. He's like, no, she's a she's a magician. And that's the only thing I was like, he, he's a dick. But like, right. at least he isn't a fair weather one. Like, right. He's not going to flip flop on that. He's going to believe that. And he probably in his fortune cookie. Um, he probably asked like it was something about her being like, is she going to make everything evil or worse? And it told him like, you know, sometimes the enemy's in the mirror. <laughs> he was like, oh, that's you told, isn't it? <laughs> He'd be like, a new magician could travel through mirrors. Yeah, I know. Yes, that's totally what would happen. Ugh, I hate that kid. <laughs> but you know, who I actually who actually really got on my nerves in this book was um, Elsie. Yeah. And uh, she has that people pleasing thing because of how her mother is. So she has this people pleasing tendency. So she forgives way too much and forgives on behalf of Amari and expects Amari to extend that same kind of grace to people who are hateful to her. And I don't like that. And there's a difference between um, like, I'm going to I'm just going to be open hearted and be your friend and embrace you and help you no matter how you treat me. And like I'm going to contribute to the problem, and it's I think Amari needs to be in that middle bit where she's wary of people but not being outrightly hostile. And Elsie doesn't seem to grasp that, which is always frustrating. Like having them hang out with Bear all year, who's always horrible to Amari, and it's like, how are you forgiving that? How are you okay with watching this guy belittle your friend and cut her down and try and exclude her from group stuff? 
because he doesn't like who she is. And then later when like Lara's getting picked on in the cafeteria and Amari's like, no, sucks to suck. And Elsie's just like, you're better than this. I'm like, I'm not flinging anything at her. I'm over here minding my own business. I'm not cheering the guys on. I'm not laughing at it. I'm just turning away from it. Like, well, you know, you reap what you sow and everyone's enjoying your downfall this much because you were a crummy person. So, um, yeah, just Elsie frustrates me. I don't think she's a particularly good friend and, um, at least at this part of the book, she, I, I, I think she improves a bit, but like yeah. her people pleasing tendencies, she's just, she needs to get the therapy for that. <laughs> um, You don't need to be everyone's friend. You don't, you don't need to be their enemy either. It's okay to be neutral. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about the 13 year old going to Oxford? <laughs> I kind of had the same thing Maybe. that you did where it's like, okay, I mean, like, there's magicians, so I'll kind of let it slide, but like, mm. <laughs> Maybe if it'd been Harvard, I'd believe it more. Or even Stanford. Not Oxford. I don't, I'm, I find it so hard to believe. Maybe Oxford has like, like a, maybe there's like a secret, like, dragon core or something there. That would be, that would make the most level of sense for this. I don't know. Maybe they do have a baby genius program. I don't know. It's just, and she's like, man, some people have been working since they were nine to get in. And I'm just like, shut up. (laughs) Her being like, why isn't Amari immediately thrilled for me? It's like, we didn't know this was on the table. Why would she ever suspect like, you know what? She might end up at Oxford like next year. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Anything else? Uh, I think the only other note that I have is um, regarding uh, Director Arlow kind of figuring out what her power was pretty early. Well, I mean, not like early and like, I I don't think I'm special for figuring it out. I think you're kind of supposed to get an inkling of it pretty early on. Um, but just like, I, I, you know, sometimes I have to pat myself on the back for like following stuff like that because I can often get so just like, in the in the moment of the story um that i'm not like thinking about like oh this is probably going to have this payoff later on because i'm just like enjoying the moment so much um, that when i'm able to like catch it i'm i'm kind of pleased with myself <laughs> <laughs> see like i thought her and bane were responsible for the time freeze cuz i was like they're the ones benefiting the most from this happening like all their axes are getting grinded ground whatever like they're getting to do whatever they want now like yeah the the cats away so the mice are play you know it's um that's where i thought we were going with it so and i figured her her skill had something to do with like manipulation or something because yeah. you'd, you'd have to be for her to work in that department or whatever if you're yeah yeah, yeah. People <laughs> things up and having press conferences and shit yeah, just, and like, I just thought she was like a PR superstar or something. And their whole their whole motto is the uh, "never let the truth get in the way of a good story." It's like he he can't exactly. The first thing that came to mind is he can't be a good person and work there. <laughs> Probably not, honestly. <laughs> um. Okay, are we ready to move on? I suspect so. 
All right, so lots of bad stuff happens, so everybody strap in. First of all, the newbie welcome ceremony is canceled, so all the incoming campers can be pre-screened for magician powers. Then what? Are they murdered? Why aren't more adults concerned about this? Then Amari has her first day of junior agent class, but it's more like homeroom or whatever. She's partnered with Tristan Davies until his high-value wizard bullshit wears thin, and Amari invokes her elite gold star status to pick a new partner. She chooses Lara Van Helsing, who's still isolated and picked on. Everyone's astonished by this choice, including Amari and Lara, but it makes total sense. Both of these kids have a lot to prove, and it's breathtaking to me how not a one of these kids is a normal person. Like, they're all just pathetic toadies, waiting to be told what to believe, waiting for which way the wind blows. I have more respect for Bear, because at least he's consistent. Anyway, Amari and Elsie continue with their investigation, despite Harlow's pretty blatant threats. Amari thinks to wonder, hey, what was the Wizard Congress meeting to discuss anyway? When they try to research this, every bit of info has been scrubbed from the other net. Elsie uses Leet Haxor's skills to get through all the blocked web pages, and they find out that the Congress was meeting about unwanteds. Merlin was known for um, wanting equal rights for unwanteds. Hmm. Who do we know in this narrative with a huge chip on their wraith shoulder about unwanteds? Hmm. And scheduled to speak that day was Harlow. So now everyone in power is frozen except for Bane and Harlow. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Let's just let those thoughts percolate, shall we? I promised you guys bad stuff, and we're not through it yet. Part of Amari's class schedule is private tutoring, which turns out to be meeting up with Maria Van Helsing in secret. Bane doesn't know they're doing this, um, learning magician SHIT right smack dab in the bureau, but Merlin approved it pre-freeze, so, like, it's not technically against the rules. It's just best that Bane not know about this. So they play magic, and Amari finally gets to tell Maria about the crown and Cosmo writing her ass about accepting it. Maria is horrified and urges Amari not to accept the crown and that she's way too young to be leading anyone in a war. Maria says she'll speak to Cosmo herself. Later, Amari texts Cosmo and tells him she doesn't want the crown. She apologizes, and he does too, which feels weird, until the building shakes and there's another announcement. Dylan Van Helsing's escaped prison. Shortly after, Amari gets word that Quentin's doing way worse, that the curse on him has gotten stronger. In the last book, Dylan took all of Moreau's magic. In doing that, he also took possession of the curse on Quentin. So this kid has a lot on her shoulders now. She gets two seconds to have a nice normal moment with Jaden, who tells her all about his new Dr. Doolittle powers, before she gets a group text from the League of Magicians ordering everyone to the meeting grounds. Amari doesn't know where that is. Cosmo doesn't drop a pin, so Amari seeks out a, a Maria, and the two bamf out of the bureau and teleport to some castle ruins. At least it's not the parking lot of a landscaping company. All the magicians among them, uh, including Steve Jobs, I guess, boo and hiss at Amari for being related to a magician hunter like Quentin. Can this kid have like five minutes where she isn't harangued for something completely outside of her control, please? But pooping on Amari isn't the point of everyone gathering. It's just a bonus. No, we're here because Cosmo busts Dylan out of prison and he's ready to take the crown since Amari didn't want it. Cosmo is really smug and feeling himself for these Game of Thrones level machinations. And it's like, yeah, dude, congrats on successfully manipulating a child. Amari's like, no, wait, hang on. I'll take the crown if it means keeping it out of Dylan's hands. With two born magicians vying for the crown, this means only one thing. Mortal Kombat! 
Okay, um, just kidding. It's the great game, a magical duel. Uh, there will be five rounds. The first combatant to rack up three wins gets the crown. Amari and Dylan are given rings that will randomly call for a game, so there's no set schedule. Just squeezing the ring transports you to a dueling ground. And to keep things interesting, this whole thing, whole game thing ends instantly if one of the magicians can successfully steal the other's magic. Amari pledges to never resort to that, and while that's noble and all, she doesn't actually know how to steal anyone's magic. Dylan, though, who oh boy, Amari better watch her back. Uh, Amari asking about the changing partners thing. I I love how that went down. Like she's just like, yeah. so the gold star gives you special privileges, right? Like picking your partner. That's correct. Uh, then I'd like to choose a different partner. <laughs> like it's just so cold. Like I can just imagine her like not even bothering to look over at him. Um, yeah, I hope she didn't. Yeah. Yeah. He's um, so annoying. I hate that kid so much. Uh, I also chuckled uh, when Fiona is telling Amari to go to the briefing room after lunch, and uh, Amari's like, "But," and it's just like, "Heavens, last, just follow orders for once. I promise it won't kill you." <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it could. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what it's like being a magician. <laughs> totally. No, not a clue. <laughs> Which class is this? The Oh, during the current events class. Um, they're talking about the unwanteds, and Davies says, Wraiths uh, might have been created by magicians, but they were human first, and they didn't fight for the Night Brothers, so they don't count. As for the real unwanteds, I don't mind them having a place in the supernatural world as long as it's separate from the rest of us. And I just wrote... Oh, no. Bro, you're in Georgia. (laughs) Yeah. You know separate but equal is not a... Oh, my God. Like, don't say anything about water fountains, please. I know. Oh, my God. I just wanted some kid to go cringe or something after he said that. (laughs) When they see the League of Magicians and, like, so many of them are, like, CEOs and politicians and stuff like that, um, I don't think the author intended this, but I think because I had been watching so much of the YouTube videos, I was kind of like, this is not too far off from the whole, like, Jewish conspiracy. Oh, yeah. And I didn't really like that parallel. Um, which I totally don't think that he was trying to imply anything about that in the real world. Um, it makes the most sense because why, why wouldn't magicians be successful when you can when you have magic on your side to like turn things around for you? So then you can accumulate wealth and power and success. So I mean, I can see where that parallel would be, but I don't think he was intentionally doing that. I don't. It either. just no. felt, makes it just makes logical sense. Yes, that that's because why would you have magic and then you're, you're poor? That yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah, unless your uh, <laughs> power is to lose money. <laughs> um, That'd be yeah. my power, Jesus. And then you, somebody has that power and then tries to be like a like a, a Wall Street better and like you know every single time they like put money in something is like the moment it like turns down. It's like. 
perfect stock market predictor just do the opposite of whatever they're doing you could use that to your advantage though like you could like have people pay you to like put stock in like whatever people they don't like is putting stock in and then tank that so then the thing you're trying to sell go okay there's a way to turn that around for being a a jinx whatever that is um okay yeah then i don't have anything more for this all right. Um, when Amari returns to camp, she tries to tell Elsie everything, but it turns out that when Cosmo swore everyone to secrecy about the great game, he meant business. Amari is physically incapable of saying a word. Elsie is furious, thinking Amari is just pretending because Amari's totally feigned muteness in the past, so this is a perfectly reasonable assumption to make. The girls argue about keeping secrets, and Amari gets in a jab about how she was blindsided by Elsie's Oxford application, and the two go to bed upset. The bad feelings continue in the morning when Amari wakes up in their room alone. Elsie tries to approach her in the cafeteria and has the nerve to be surprised when Amari avoids her to stave off another fight. She takes a seat by herself and doesn't get the mope for long when she's joined by Lara. Lara's tried to switch partners, but she and Amari are stuck together. They decide that even though Lara's a stuck-up little bully, they're going to be good partners. To prove she's acting in good faith, Lara opens up a Reddit AMA. Amari asks how the hell Lara got into junior agents when she failed the tryouts last year. The answer, Lara's rich daddy pulled some strings, got her enrolled in an Australian camp, or an Australian school, and when their summer break happened in December, Lara went to an Australian summer camp and passed the tryout there. This shouldn't be allowed, and it wouldn't have wouldn't have been if Bane hadn't come into power and approved it. So here we are. Amari wants to know one more thing. Who drew the gross caricature of her on her wall last year? Lara insists it wasn't her, but her pukey little toady acting on Lara's orders. So basically Lara did it. Um, well, Amari doesn't have a, a whole lot of junior agents lining up to be her ally. So she has to take what she can get. The girls pledge to be good partners. I'm not holding my breath. After breakfast, it's field training, and the kids get to assist with shooing a rare and elusive creature called a car call back into its cave. Well, not all the kids. Agent Magnus has orders to keep Amari safe, so she and Lara get to come with him on a less dangerous mission. They're disappointed, and then it gets worse when Tristan, as the odd junior agent out, has to join them. Amari witnesses Magnus and Agent Fiona lock eyes and blush, and she's like, oh, so this is still a thing? Magnus admits that they're engaged, and the girls ask lots of intrusive questions until Tristan points out that they're on a mission. I'll probably never say this again, but thank you, Tristan. The group go to the gadget room <laughs> where uh, Elsie gives them restitchers, which is some kind of device that the wearer pushes a button and then, like, they end up wearing a disguise. Um, Elsie and Amari are awkward with each other, and Magnus picks up on it and actually says something cringe. Magnus transports them to a hotel, and they disguise themselves as pest control workers. The mission is to find a rumored unwanted hiding here and deport them. I don't like the implication that their disguises suggest, and honestly, it doesn't seem to sit right with Magnus either. In a colossally dumb move, Magnus and the kids split up to look for the unwanted. Presumably the kids are supposed to stay together, but Tristan runs off to be a glory hog, as does Lara. Dummies. Clearly, as the protagonist, Amari's going to find the unwanted. And she does almost right away. He's a night walker named Newton Fear Drinker, and he's a pretty nice guy for a smoky, dark nighttime creature or a nightmare creature. He's scared of getting sent to the sightless depths and wants no part in the war against the Bureau. 
Omari's like, a what now? Newton tells her that a magician put out an APB to all unwanteds to mobilize like they did all did back in the day. Omari suspects Dylan. Newton goes on about the last war and how it's uh, so similar to how everything's going right now, like all the choosing sides and a time freeze. Omari's like, wait, there was a time freeze back then? Unfortunately, Newton can't disperse more information because it sounds like the other kids are coming her way. So Omari lets Newton escape, and he urges her to take care of his pet shade. The shade's the size of a baseball and has glowing white eyes. While Omari wonders what to do, Lara steps out and reveals she's heard everything. Instead of snitching that Omari blew the mission, she stuffs the shade in her coat when Tristan arrives on the scene. Magnus isn't far behind, and since they've all struck out, they decide to leave. Right at that moment, Amari's ring, uh, game ring heats up. She tries to excuse herself by saying she left her stun stick behind. Tristan's like, no, it's in your coat pocket. So hilariously, Amari just runs away from them. And once she's around a corner, she squeezes the ring. Amari is transported to the edge of a cliff. On the other side of the canyon is a golden pedestal with the rings. Etched in the rock is eyes closed, steps bold, believe. Basically, she has to follow Looney, Looney Tunes logic. By walking on air and not looking down, you won't fall. So Amari tries, but then the winds start talking to her, warning her that she'll fall and Dylan's coming. Um, she realizes this is the Whispering Canyon and that these are the Whispering Winds. She hears Dylan trying to attack her from behind, but whoops, <laughs> it was the wind. She falls to what could have been her death, but she squeezes the ring and ends up back at the hotel with the others. Amari gets a lecture about teamwork, but she's too disheartened by her first game loss to really attend to it. Once they return to the bureau, Lara takes the shade to her room since she doesn't have a roommate. Amari gets, goes to her private lesson with Maria and tells her about the loss. Maria's dismayed that the competition's started. She's been researching how to, how to end the time freeze so she can save the Congress, avert war, and vote to end the game early. Now she's worried for Amari because Dylan's had such a big head start on magic and Amari's still a beginner. Maria's worried for Dylan, too. She could have been a good magician role model for him growing up, but she was too busy running around with Quentin playing the Avengers. He used to be a really nice kid, but Moreau's tutelage warped him. Amari vows to win and says that once she's got Dylan's magic, he can go back to being that nice kid again. Maria changes the subject to their lesson, which is secondary magic. Maria has blood magic and controls fire, and it turns out Amari's secondary ability is weather control. Maria gives her a book to study, and then suddenly the door bangs open. It's Harlow, here to arrest Maria for the time freeze. They found incriminating information on Maria's computer all about time freezes. And, well, she's a magician, and they just caught her red-handed doing magic in the bureau. They expect Amari to go along with the story, or they'll send Maria to the sightless depths. That means when they perp-walk Maria through the bureau... Harlow loudly announces that Amari was the one who turned her in, and Amari agrees. Okay, we need a win. This is getting depressing. At dinner, Elsie confronts Amari and pieces together with her genius brain that Amari's taken a magical vow of secrecy. Whew, fight over. Then Amari gets a frantic text from Lara to come to her dorm. The girls go running and find the shade, tearing the place up. None of them can catch it, so Elsie texts Jaden to come help. She's all chummy with him because they formed a self-pitying club called the Amari Abandonment Association. That's pretty mean-spirited for someone as overly preachy and high-horsey as Elsie. I really dislike this kid. Meanwhile, Lara's not mad at Amari, even though her sister just got arrested. Uh, Maria used her one phone call to call uh, Lara and explain everything. 
So Jaden shows up and he tells the shade to chill out. He names it Shadow and they all promise to take turns looking after it so they can take the heat off of Lara. The kids catch each other up on current events and decide there's four of them investigating this time freeze now. Elsie says she'll do the research, leaving the others to investigate the Congress room. Laura says she'll take one of her dad's transporters to get them there. Jaden knows an unused room they can meet in to discuss this stuff, so they can quit meeting up in Laura's room. So, that's a little pressure off of Amari. She just needs to survive this stupid game. So, the fact that Elsie couldn't immediately figure out the idea of uh, Amari being, like, sworn to magical silence about something was, like, so aggravated by that. <laughs> right. Because um, it's like, what in her past behavior is making you think that that's a possibility? That's why I got so snide in my notes about it. Just like, yeah. <laughs> think, uh, think Oxford should rescind that, uh, invitation if you're that dumb. <laughs> you think maybe the one writerly quirk I'm not a fan of for this author, or at least, you know, in this series, is how often. Elsie's name is replaced with best friend in order to like not name her as frequently. Like Amari refers to um, her as that a lot, and I just got really tired yeah. of it. Um, but that's like such a minor thing. Um maybe that happens just because I don't think Mari's had a best friend before. So yeah, it's still kind of like so awful like, to her. Right. It's like it's it, it still feels good on her yeah. tongue. Yeah, and plus maybe he wants to like shake up like not just using a name constantly yeah oh no i, I figured that, I that's probably why, i noticed but it too just, yeah <laughs> well, i noticed that too i was just like just say elsie we know who it is yeah it's like it's okay to use the word said hundreds of times because yes <laughs> because it's it becomes invisible after a while you don't really yeah. notice it yeah yeah there's nothing wrong with said my my love of mundane bureaucracy continues with the permit to terrorize. <laughs> and like the area, darkened alley beside the Millennia building, bright times, midnight to dawn. I just, I love it. I love documentation for things that don't need documentation. It's like getting a receipt for a donut. We do not need to bring ink and paper into this. <laughs> when she is doing the trial with the, uh, the invisible path off the cliff and the, the whispering winds. I, I wrote your stairway lies on the whispering wind and then just in my head did the whole rest of stairway to heaven. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's the second time this has come up in our podcast because at the end of uh, all the lovely bad ones, when they literally take a stairway up to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, it's only happened two times. That's still weird. Yeah. It's still weird that it's happened. I like the little shade. I drew doodles of the shade in my margins. Yes. I like him, too. He's very good. <laughs> He's very good. <laughs> so my favorite my favorite character in this book was Jaden. So him yeah. and the shade being buddies. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, they're a good team. Yeah, no, I think he's a good addition to, like, the crew, like Jaden is. I th I, he is. I enjoy his, his presence in this, so. And, um, I... Don't think he's as preachy as Elsie is, but still kind of a good grounding influence and has the benefit of having known her for years. So it's good having him there, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And like coming from coming from similar backgrounds, like in terms of like neighborhood and stuff, I think that helps with the idea of like 
if he's speaking on something, like, she can understand his perspective because they've seen a lot of the same stuff. And I think that that, I think that that is helpful for, uh, for grounding in a way that, like, Elsie can't quite provide in the same way. Not when your best friend is, like, big part of, like, your brother's fan club and, like, posts about him online and, like, has a lot of internet clout around that fandom. That's weird. I actually don't know if I could be friends with her for that. Like, having a poster of your brother. Yeah, it's just weird. Yeah, it's like, okay, you see me as a real person, but you see my brother as, like, a god. Um, There's a little bit of a disconnect here. Yeah. And while Jaden admires Quentin, like, he thinks that they're just both awesome. Like, both of the Peters kids are really, like, inspirational and, like, smart and cool and all of that. So. Yeah. Again, again, we're glad Jaden's here. Definitely. I think that's cool, though, that, like, he, like, both of Amari's friends think very highly of Quentin, but one of them had no idea that he, like, was involved in all of this, like, super cool celebrity magic stuff, and still thought that he was, like, an incredible guy, which really just goes to show that Quentin is just, like, a really good person at the core, regardless of power and status and stuff like that, and I I think that's just really, it's nice to be reminded that, like, you don't need to be, like, super special in order to have a positive impact in people's lives. And you can still be appreciated yeah. for just being, you know, kind and thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right, um, are you ready for the next part? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Mari practices um, some of her weather magic. Uh, it works best with strong emotions. And Amari finds that harnessing her fear and putting it to use gets her some results. In the morning, Amari and Elsie get up at the crack of dawn to meet a boy from the Department of Time Management. He's a huge Vanquish fan, and he agrees to let the girls research in his department in exchange for a picture with Amari to put on social media. Okay. The department is accessed by elevator by typing in a special code, then the doors open onto an enormous clock face. Arthur moves the hands to 11.59. Once it strikes 12... The clock face opens like a door, and they're in the Department of Time Management. Arthur takes them to the archives, and they start searching for anything pertaining to the Knight Brothers and time freezes. Amari finds one thing in a book called Titans of Time, Volume 2, Swindlers and Scams. It's an anecdote of the Knight Brothers using a time freeze to escape a werewolf uh, attack. The freeze didn't affect the brothers... And um, this sucks because we're back at square one that only a magician could have frozen the Congress. Later during sky sprint practice, Harlow and the press arrive to get pictures and footage of Amari smiling and nodding like a good little magician. Tristan gets jealous and demands that he and his partner duel Amari and Lara. The adults feebly argue against this, but Tristan insists and gets his way. These are some weak ass adults. I just sent him out of the room for back talking. So the duel goes badly, and before Amari can lose, she gets upset and blows a storm through the room. Harlow drags Amari to Chief Crow's office to chew her out. Of course, this is when the game ring signals her that it's time to go, so she squeezes it when Harlow's back is turned. This time, she's in the library of Alexandria, where all the books are alive. She has fun with the musical books until Dylan shows up to burn books and villain monologue. He sucks. Amari befriends a book of fireworks to distract Dylan so she can get to the room where the rings are. The room's full of book-handling gloves, 
and in the center of the room is a pedestal holding a glass bowl of some boiling liquid. Three guesses where the ring is. The instructions say to choose the strongest glove. When Dylan arrives, he chooses diamond and burns his hand. What's stronger than a diamond? Nothing. Amari barehand grabs the ring from the bowl and then stands there explaining her logical reasoning. So Dylan uses shadow magic to hold her in place and steal the ring from her. Her poor dumbass would still be in that damn library. But a, a book she rescued from the flames claps onto her hand and squeezes the ring so they can escape. Amari returns to Chief Crow's office and Harlow is pissed at her disappearing act. She strips away Amari's elite pin and her moonstone badge as punishment. She's given a red dangerous badge, which actually sounds kind of cool, and told she's not allowed to talk to anyone anymore. They even FaceTime or whatever with Bane so he can sneer at her. Finally, she escapes to a study room with her book and tells Elsie what she can. Elsie's indignant, but they get distracted with the book. It's called A Collection of Looking Glasses, and it shows them scenes from their past and future. They're alarmed to see in the future that Laura holds them holds like a stun stick on the two of them. And Amari suggests that maybe they're just practicing, honey. The book shows them what they most need to see, and it's their fortunes from the beginning of the book. They're puzzling over that as they leave the room and witness Laura being all secretive and whispery with her dad. Hmm. So it's the night they're breaking into the Congress room, and Laura has her dad's transporter. Amari's like, if you're fixing to betray me, you tell me, right? And Laura's like, oh, for sure, but I'm not going to because I want to help my sister. Amari accepts that, and I guess she doesn't really have any other choice here. In the Congress room, they find the cameras are unplugged, and the Bureau's research shows that the cameras cut out before the freeze. Amari's able to walk through the room without freezing. She notes that everyone's looking in the same direction with looks of horror and recognition on their faces and deduces that it couldn't have been anyone from the League of Magicians, since those dudes are all real secretive. No, somehow, it had to be Dylan. The security guard spots them, and they bamf back to Laura's room, just in time to dive into bed when someone comes to check on them. I agree that the, the dangerous pin actually sounds, like, pretty rad. Um, like, that's yeah. that's definitely the sort of thing that, like, you know, people would take and, like, spin the negative into a positive sort of a thing. Um, I did write, at least it's not a Star of David. Oh no. <laughs> the um the fortune cookie thing, it was the beware of unseen dangers. Um I yeah. wondered my thought was if that was a reference to the sightless depths because like sightless and unseen were like kind of like mirror yeah. words. So that's kind of where I was going with that. Yeah. Which then I think I followed up with uh they were wondering how like they were thinking about like, you know, if Dylan how could he get out of prison and why would he ever go back? And I was like, well, the game ring allows you to like leave wherever you are. Then you return to the same spots. So that'd be like the perfect tool for that. Um, so I was trying to build like a League of Magicians conspiracy. And I actually had I some. Thinking... Uh, oh, yeah. I had some you reasonable had some... points. <laughs> I was thinking he got out earlier, but then delayed the alarms so he'd have like some plausible deniability or whatever. That was that was my uh that was my theory I was working with. Then yeah. I'm good. Okay. All right. Elsie's spending the weekend in England, so uh Amari's on her own. She hangs out with Jaden, who cheers her up with stories about Quentin. He talks about 
being brave and how Quentin taught him to stand up for himself. Jaden tells Amari that starting camp without her actually worked out well for him. He got to figure things out for himself instead of using her as a safety net. Amari has a little epiphory about her friendship with Elsie and begins to think that maybe her best friend leaving is a good thing. Jaden tells her about Julia hosting a live stream in support of Unwanted's. Amari agrees to go, but not to be on camera because uh, she's on the thinnest of ice with Harlow and Bane. They end up sharing an elevator with Lara and her dad, who were yucking it up seconds before they came on. Hmm. Director Van Helsing chews Jaden out for talking to Amari and honestly, eat a bag of dicks, dude. Anyway, there are quite a few kids in the room for the live stream, and Amari hangs back. Jaden gets on camera and explains that he's against the deportation of Unwanted because his own father was deported by the U.S. government, and his life is really sucked without his dad. He implores everyone to realize that Unwanted matter to the people in their lives and that those lives have value. Jaden's bravery and sincerity inspires Amari to come forward. She apologizes for act, acting as if she's condoning the Bureau's practices and explains how Bane and Harlow have been blackmailing her. She pins a button to her jacket that Elsie made that says nobody's unwanted. The whole live stream claps. Later, Amari looks through her weatherist book for a big impressive spell to stop Dylan. At the back of the book, she finds a crossed out spell called Calamity of the Skies. All the book says is to forget it. No magicians ever come back from using it. Since she's in a bit of a stalemate with her investigation, she goes to get advice from Magnus. He and Fiona are in a training gym rehearsing their wedding dance, but they stop to talk to her. Magnus tells her that at this point in an investigation, they'd bring the subject in for questioning, but that Dylan's been keeping a low profile. Speaking of which, Omari should be considering doing the same because Harlow and Bane were furious with Omari for that live stream. Her words made people look into the charges against Maria, and once people saw how flimsy the evidence was, they've been calling for her release. Fiona cautions Amari strongly about Harlow in particular. When Fiona was 12 and got her magical ability to sense people's motivations, Harlow threatened Fiona to never use her power on her, or Harlow would hurt Fiona in ways she never knew existed. I don't really have a witty, sassy comment for that, so this is a transition sentence to get us to the next part of the book. On Monday, Elsie returns and they use Jaden's secret spot for a meeting. It's our usual group, but also Arthur. Welcome to the team, time boy. They review the information they already know, and Arthur suggests that they contact the werewolf Thomas Fletcher and ask him about the time freeze. Laura's like, oh, yeah, sure, but like he's been dead for hundreds of years. So? We all have an inn in the Department of the Dead, our good buddy who's definitely Julia, not Julie. She can get in touch with Fletcher and ask him. So they all do that, and the setup looks like when you visit someone in prison and use the phones to talk, which is kind of funny. After one wrong number, Julia gets in touch with Fletcher, who refuses to talk at first until he realizes that it's THE Amari Peters on the line. Fletcher tells them Dylan came to visit last summer asking about the time freeze. He didn't just want a little story, though. He wanted the memory itself and erased it from Fletcher's name by saying Dreamcatcher. Uh, when Amari gets back to her room, she searches the spell book Dylan gave her last year to find this spell. Elsie points out that all the spells are Latin-based, and this one uh, isn't. With this insight, Amari finds a hidden section of the spell book written by Dylan himself. Uh, Dreamcatcher steals memories, and then Dylan keeps them as wakeful dreams. This kid is so scummy. 
Suddenly, the game ring heats up. Elsie sees Amari's fear and tries to keep her from leaving. Every second she wastes arguing with Elsie is time in which Dylan could get the next ring. Desperate, Amari squeezes the ring in front of Elsie, disappearing before her eyes. She turns up in a room of mirrors, with Dylan standing there looking dazed. We don't have time to boggle at this because next we're back at Amari's apartment somehow. Quentin's all better. Elsie's not going to England. And Mama's making gumbo. This reality is so tempting to stay in, but it turns out the little shade shadow hitched a ride here in Amari's pocket, and he acts as a cold little anchor to reality. Amari reluctantly leaves the fantasy world, and once she's out, she finds the victor ring. She's about to leave when she hears Dylan call out to her in his perfect world vision. She pauses and is completely confused that she's even a part of his at all when she sees a living nightmare approach Dylan to eat him. Amari's too much of a hero to let him get eaten alive, plus they need him for the time freeze investigation, so she links arms with him and squeezes her ring to get them both out of there. They reappear in Amari's room, and the gang's all there. Well, shit. Uh, I like how uh, Dylan hides his the, the like extra part of his, uh, like his, his book of spells, because the book asks, whom do you serve? And so she's like, or out. And it's like, yeah, but like, really who? And she's like, yeah, but really who? She's like, ah, shoot. Um, me? And it's like, yes. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> selfish little. <laughs> you selfish little so-and-so. So I liked that. Oh, at one point, Magnus is, I think this is before that, but at one point, Magnus is talking about how Fiona's able to tell people's intentions because it's their power, but for everybody else, you have to rely on instincts and things like that, and he mentions that body language nearly always tells the story, and I wrote, actually, because I just watched a video about uh, like so-called body language experts who go on to like news and try to like analyze you know, like Prince Harry or the president or something based on their body language, mm-hmm. and They've done some fair, fairly extensive research on that science and found that it's, in fact, like, worse than just complete 50-50 guessing. Um. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bunk. It's so... And they describe, like, oh, someone doing this for sure is, like, they're definitely guilty. And I'm like, I'm incredibly awkward. And I never know what to do with my hands. That doesn't mean I'm constantly lying. Yeah. Also, like, as soon and, as you say that, like, then people are going to know a certain way, which then renders whatever yeah. you had just said completely useless. Totally. And also, it um, doesn't take into account, like, neurodivergent people yep. who avoid eye contact because it's uncomfortable. But they're always like, oh, if someone's avoiding eye contact, well, they're totally lying. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I think it's also very, oh. like, Western culture centric as well. Yes, Absolutely. Because, like, there are lots of cultures where maybe you don't meet eye contact with somebody if they are, like, a superior to you or something like that. Or your elder. Or if it's someone like, you don't know. You know. Yeah. Yeah, so that's all nonsense. Um, Which I, I, has nothing to do with this book, really. It's just... Yeah. And then the, the little shade is the helper by, like, yeah. reminding her that it's not real. I'm like, job, little buddy. <laughs> Go back to your real friends. Hey, Shadow, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's about it for that. Yeah. Is this the last section, or do we have one or two more left? 
This is the last section. Oh, geez. It's a chunky one. Okay. Uh, here we go. Here we go. All right. So predictably, everyone flips out that Dylan's there, but they don't flip out for long because he uses his shadow powers to subdue them. He's ready to kill Amari, but she's like, I saved you from getting eaten, Brosif. They bicker, and Amari begs him to end the time freeze so Bane will stop hunting magicians. Dylan denies responsibility and tells them to go look up look up uh, in the Department of Dreams and Nightmares. Then he squeezes his ring and he's out of there. The kids go straight to the Department of Dreams and Nightmares, and the setup reminds me of how it works in Animal Crossing when you go to the Dream Suite and you can like save your island as like a dream. That with you know with like all the passwords and accessing files and crap. Anyway, so they access Dylan's file and Thomas Fletcher's memory. They witness the werewolves charging on the Knight Brothers' hideout, and then Moreau holds up some sort of object, and it freezes the wolves. So now we're looking for whatever this MacGuffin is. Unfortunately, the kids get rounded up in the chief's office. Uh, Bane's there, as well as Lara's dad, and Bane demands to know what they've learned in their investigation. To the shock of Amari and Elsie, Lara sings like a canary. She's been a spy all along in exchange for Bane letting her into camp with her cockamamie Australian junior agent badge. Laura gets to walk, and Amari and Elsie will be exposed as traitors. And to add insult to injury, Quentin will be removed from his place in supernatural health. Even though they're in deep, the girls don't spend their time confined in their room crying. They go over what they saw in Fletcher's dream, and Elsie deduces that the MacGuffin should still be in the Congress room. Unfortunately, Laura has a transporter, and also she's a snake. It can't get any worse, so Amari's game ring calls her. She and Dylan are on an underwater train headed right for the Kraken. The Victor ring is encased in glass, which they can't get at no matter how many spells they try. When the train derails, the Kraken grabs their car. Dylan pieces out. Amari stays, and when the glass shatters, she grabs the ring and bamps back to camp. She returns to find Elsie on the phone with Lara. Lara's so sorry. Her dad made her do it. Yada yada. At least I didn't say anything about what you and Dylan are up to. I mean, she didn't because no one knows, but whatever. They need her transporters, so, you know, again, whatever. Amari uses an invisibility spell to get to Lara's room, and Lara bamps them back to the Congress room. Amari really searches and uses her noggin and realizes that Merlin's clutching a stone. She peels his fingers off, and he's like, no, give it back. Time moving forward a few seconds reveals the unseen danger this book's been banging on about from the start. The wraiths floating above the room, no longer caught in mid-flicker. All the bureau agents there to catch the kids turn on Bane and cuff him, but unfortunately, the real ba- brains of the operation shows up. Harlow. Her secret power is controlling the actions of others. Merlin's um, had a lid on her power for years, but with him out of commission, she's been pretty free to do whatever she wants for the last week or so. She has Bane released, and then everyone turns their stun guns on Amari and Elsie, the only two people immune to Harlow's power. Harlow villain monologues and says that they know about the League of Magicians from looking into Maria's past. She'll be sending wraiths after all of them now. Amari's game ring heats up, and she transports her and Elsie out of there. They end up in an empty field, and Amari has Elsie hide. Dylan's there, and so's Cosmo, who wants them to cut the shit and crown a victor already. The kids fight, and Amari gets the upper hand by using the Calamity of Skies, but Elsie makes her stop. So Amari uses Dreamcatcher to pull out Dylan's memories that make him bad. They hug it out once those are gone, but Cosmo says dispel, and all the memories go back into Dylan. 
So Dylan takes Amari's powers from her and tries to kill her and Elsie with a wall of flame. Elsie throws herself in front of Amari. This act of bravery turns her into a dragon, finally. The flames do nothing to the dragon, and then hilariously, Elsie flies away, just leaving Amari there. Dylan leaves to go be Witch King, I guess, and Cosmo takes Amari home. I guess Amari's too shell-shocked by how quickly everything went to shit because she doesn't punch him in the throat like he deserves. Back at home, Quentin's in a hospital bed in his room, and Amari's moping when Jaden shows up. He's here to pick up clothes for Elsie, who turned up on his rooftop post-dragon fit. Also, camp's closed because the bureau is burning. There's reports of missing people all over the world. Um, the only thing left behind, uh, a weird graffiti that just says unwanted. Elsie's sleeping on the couch, so they wake her ass up. Now that Amari's out of the game, she tells them everything and just how fucked everyone is now. It's miserable, but hey, Quentin wakes up and joins them in the living room. His muscles somehow not atrophied after three years in a coma. He reassures Amari that she's not the screw-up she thinks she is, just that a lot of things outside of her control happened. What she can control is what she's going to do now. Amari says she wants to fight. How she'll do that with no magic is anyone's guess, but count me in once BB releases book three. The end. Yeah. Yeah. So much happened in this book. Right? I also really enjoyed the the space where they can, like, view memories. The, like, the, the, the dream theater thing. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, no, this is the... There's a lot going on in this book. Yes, so much. It's, it's very dense in, on, like, a on like a world-building sort of scale. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Some people, when you read their fantasy books, um, they really skimp on the world-building, and it it shows and doesn't really hold up to any kind of scrutiny. So you're just kind of better to just like read it as like a popcorn book. This isn't a popcorn book. Like yeah. this is very detailed with um, like nuanced. There, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely read usually more like adult fantasy that goes kind of the other direction where they're so excited about the world building and they're so proud of all the details they put in. They forgot to like write characters that I'm connected to. Or a story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're just I've, like, read, I've read those too. Yeah. And it's like, dude, you know, all the world building you could ever write will not save your story if there's not a story and if there aren't people in the story that uh you care what happens to them yeah yeah um yeah i think but this kind of covers it right he does it right it's like you learn it in the action in the thick of things and i appreciate that because it doesn't grind to a halt while we get this whole long info dump of bullshit that you may or may not remember later so yeah definitely and uh He's good at, like, he's creating all of these little things that he's then coming back to. It's not just, like, it's not entirely set dressing. It's, like, I'm telling you about this thing, and you're going to be like, oh, that's cool. And then a little while later, we're actually going to, like, use it. And so it's going to matter that we've, like, brought it into the fold. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, still good. Very, very much more a stressful experience than the uh, first one. But, um. Oh, yeah. Much, much more. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and the first one wasn't entirely free of stress so yeah 
But this is such a good series. I want I want more people reading this. Like if you have a kid who's like new to reading stuff, this is like inclusive and fun. I've been telling people at uh, at school that I feel like each generation, not like however like twenty years or whatever they consider a generation that way, but like I don't know, maybe cohort has kind of their magical world story, and so like yeah. I really want this one to be the current one, and I, I, I don't think it's going to be, but not, not for a lack of quality, just for a lack of maybe like marketing. Like it's yes. definitely, it's definitely not a like it's still a successful series. It's definitely selling. I've seen, I've seen it at the uh like the airport like newsstand bookstore, which only selects a handful of titles at any time. Mm-hmm. So like. You know, it's doing well. It's just, I don't think they're trying to market it as the, like, you know, kind of forcing it into success the way they have with other series. Um, and I think, yeah, that, I think that they should put more energy behind this because it, Alston is definitely putting a lot of effort into making something that deserves that attention. It really does. I, I wish he was getting the level of attention and excitement about this. That, um, this is probably going to be controversial of me to say, but that Children of Blood and Bone and, and, um, blanking on the author, I apologize. Uh, I don't think, yeah, she didn't live up to the hype at all. I think that the thing with that is that there's such a ravenous fan base for that age range of writing. Like, not, not that all the readers are that age, but there's, I think that a lot of the people who read more of the teen YA style fantasy are, I mean, they're more social media savvy and they're also just compulsive about it in a way that right. I think yeah. that people aren't as much so for middle grade, which is a shame because you could definitely transfer some of that energy over to this. And I don't think anything of, of substance be would no be lost from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he he des he deserves more than he's getting. Like and, and he's and I and, and he's like you said, like he's doing he seems to be doing well, but I I want this to, to be the next cultural juggernaut. I want this to be the next big book that kids are obsessed with. And um I want there to be like a group of like very strange children who are really into it and make it their personality and then they just tell weird stories about how they were when they were younger like the kids who read the um those cat books why am i blanking what those are called yeah the warrior cats because that was a very strange subsect of children who were really like leaned into those books if you've read any of like accounts online of like hey remember when i was really into these books and and they just behaved very oddly yeah like the story of the kids who were like, we were playing warrior cats at recess and I was giving birth to my litter and I put a stick in my mouth to bite down on for the pain. And then the stick broke and I got all these uh, splinters in my gums. And then they had to make a special school rule to not put sticks in your mouth. Like that's bananas. I love that that happened. That kids were so excited by a book series that they were weird like that. And I want that for this book. I just, I want to see kids arguing about like which department they would be in the same way that kids are with like Percy Jackson are like, Oh, which God do you think like your, your godparent would have been like if, if you were a demigod, like, 
or like write their own fan fiction for like what department, like just make up a department. Cause why yeah. can't you? Cause we definitely yeah, haven't so seen many. all of them. No, I, I doubt we've scratched the surface of what's yeah. there. So yeah, that would, that would be so fun. That would, that's what I would have been into as a kid. Um, so Amari and the great game, still it's a very great. fun series. I would rate it like a strong four. Goodreads, I guess, would be four. Um, Storygraph, like 4.25. Yeah. 4.5 in that range. But that's still a completely worthwhile book. Yeah, for sure. I saw, I saw someone on YouTube who was just like, she's like, here's the books I read in 2022. And, um, it was really hard because I didn't really read anything good. So there's a lot of four star books in here. And I'm just like, four is still really good. What drugs are you on? And she was like disappointed that she didn't have a whole lot of fives. And I'm like, that should be normal. You shouldn't be fiving everything. Like we've discussed this, but like, it was just so funny to see that and just be like, no, you're doing it right. Yeah. You're so discouraged, but you're doing it right. The other night I was reading some manga and I was like, I just tore through the first four volumes of a series and then I was reading them and I was like, I feel like, I don't, I don't want to be the person that gives five stars to everything, but like, holy crap, am I watching like an absolute master storyteller at work? Like, I'm just, I was just like blown away by every panel and I was like, ah, ah. it's so nice when you can like find something that's like so consistently great that you can binge and you're yeah. like, this is what reading should be. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not disappointed. <laughs> All right, so I think that about does it for Amari and the Great Game. Next month, we are going to be reading The Ogress and the Orphans, which is the newest novel by Kelly Barnhill, author of The Girl Who Drank the Moon. Um, So we're going to do a little bit more of like revisiting authors that we've read before, but this isn't a series. This is just a whole new novel. Um, So I'm really curious to see what happens with that. It's it's looks like it's doing really well. Good, good. Yeah, so uh, look forward to that in March. Hello, Fellow Kids is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh, music provided by Ben Ash. You can visit him at benash.com. If you'd like to contact us, we are on Twitter and Instagram, though, you know, not really. <laughs> at HFK Podcast, uh, but... More consistently, uh, you can email us at hfkpodcast at gmail.com, and we will actually see that. Thanks for listening, and we will be back in March with The Ogress and the Orphans. Bye! Bye!